One of my favorite authors is the Catholic novelist Flannery O'Connor. And one of my favorite stories of her, it's a short story called Revelation. It's all about this woman named Mrs. Turpin. And Mrs. Turpin is a, she's a middle-class farmer's wife. And she spends all of her time ranking people in her mind, judging them and ranking them based on race and on their social class and on their manners. And she's very sociable and cheery in her demeanor with other people, but she's also constantly sizing people up, always in comparison with herself and with her husband, Claude, and where she thinks they rank. And the story is all about a revelation that she receives pretty violently. And this revelation, this truth that she gets, is something which completely upends her estimation of herself and of all these other people that she's been ranking. And right at the end of the story, she has a vision. She's out in a field and she has a vision of a bridge going up into heaven. And all these people are on it, ascending to heaven. All these people that she has looked down on, people that she thought were lower than herself, people who she thought were dirty or unclean. And then here's what we read right at the end of the story. And bringing up the end of the procession was a tribe of people whom she recognized at once is those who, like herself and Claude, had always had a little of everything and the given wit to use it right. She leaned forward to observe them closer. They were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces, even their virtues were being burned away. In a moment, the vision faded, but she remained where she was. Now, you might be asking yourself, why in the world is he talking about this story in a study of the book of Acts? Well, I think it's because this story is all about someone who has a vision, a vision that completely realters her sense of not only who she is, but really her sense of who is in and who is out, who is righteous and who is wicked, who is clean and who is unclean. And that is very similar to the story that we read in Acts chapter 10 and 11, the story of the apostle Peter and Cornelius. Uh, like Mrs. Turpin, Peter also has a vision. And really it's a vision about who is in and who is out. And Peter's vision is no less shocking to him than Mrs. Turpin's was to her. And the conclusion that he draws from it is no less revolutionary for early Christians. So the question is, what was this vision and what were its implications? Now, interestingly, the story of Peter's vision in Acts chapter 10 and 11, it's actually the longest single story in the book of Acts. It takes up 66 whole verses divided up into about seven different scenes. You could tell how important Luke thinks that this event is because of just how much time he devotes to it. Now, the story begins right in the opening of chapter 10. And it begins 
not with Peter's vision, but with another vision. First, we're introduced to a man named Cornelius. Luke tells us two things about this man. The first is he is a Gentile. He is a non-Jew, and not just any non-Jew. He's a, he's a Roman centurion. He is someone who is uh, complicit in the oppressive force that is keeping Jews in Palestine in track. And so he's a Gentile. He's a non-Jew. But the second thing is that this man is a God-fearer. Uh, this word, God-fearer, it was a word that was sometimes used of Gentiles, non-Jews, who even though they weren't circumcised, even though they weren't actual proselytes and converts to Judaism, they still honored the God of Israel and they still tried to follow many of the moral teachings of the Torah. And Luke tells us that Cornelius is not just a God-fearer, but that he's particularly respected that he's someone who prays regularly and that he gives alms. He's generous in his giving to the poor, the two great markers of piety for the Jewish world. Well, then this man Cornelius, he has a vision. And in the vision, he hears a voice that speaks to him and tells him to send men from his city where he lives, Caesarea, to Joppa, and to bring a man named Peter. Now, next day, he sends these men, and as they're on the way, we all of a sudden get a scene with the Apostle Peter, who's on the roof praying at noontime. And as he's praying, Peter too has a vision. Now, this one is very strange. Here's how Luke describes it in Acts 10, verses 11 and 13. Peter saw the heavens open. And something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, Peter's first reaction to this vision and the voice is just total refusal. Peter uses this Greek word, miramos, by no means or not at all in his response. He says that he's never eaten anything unclean. This is very close, what Peter says here. is very close to what the prophet Ezekiel says in chapter 4 of Ezekiel, when he too is told to eat something unclean. Not at all, says Ezekiel, Lord God. I have never defiled myself from my youth up to now. Now, this happens three separate times in his vision. This sheet descends with all these animals, and he's told to kill and eat them. It's difficult for us today to understand Peter's attitude and his refusal. Why this big deal over eating? But you have to remember, the Mosaic law forbade eating unclean animals. There were distinctions made in Leviticus between clean and unclean animals, and Jews were prohibited from eating certain ones. That's really what separated Jews from non-Jews. And this was a strong symbol at the time that uh, Peter lived, a strong symbol of of loyalty and fidelity to Judaism and to, to their God. It had been a cause of great persecution during the period of the Maccabees, and there were still stories about how faithful Jews had chose martyrdom rather than eating unclean food. 
And so it was a sign for Jews, a sign of separation from a sinful and pagan world. It was a sign of their holiness. And for a Jew like Peter, eating unclean food, all these animals that he was shown, that was tantamount to turning his back on God's call of the Jewish people to be separate and holy. Uh, the Methodist bishop, Will Willimon, here's how he puts it in his commentary on Acts. These dietary laws are not a matter of etiquette or peculiar culinary habits. They are a matter of survival and identity for Jews. But when Peter refuses to eat what he has shown, his refusal is met with a response. The response he is told is, what God has cleansed, do not call unclean. Now, Peter is very unsettled by this vision. And right after he has it, he is puzzled over what it might mean. But almost immediately in the story, these men who have been sent from Cornelius arrive and they're looking for Peter and they invite him to come to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go, just like the Holy Spirit had told Ananias to go see the Apostle Paul in the chapter before. And Luke doesn't tell us when Peter figured out the meaning of this vision that he had. But by the time that he arrives at Cornelius' house, it's obvious that he understands. Because here's what Peter tells Cornelius. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That's what Peter has been shown in his vision. Not just about what foods are clean and unclean, but what kind of people are clean and unclean. And then several verses later, when Peter starts to preach the gospel to Cornelius' household, he repeats this same theme, this same lesson. Here's how he starts his sermon. Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Uh, this statement, God shows no partiality, it's not a novel claim on Peter's part. The Old Testament spoke of God as impartial in books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And Gentiles also prize the virtue of impartiality. You just have to think about the goddess justice, impartiality, how she was minted on Roman coins. It showed how much the Romans valued this virtue. But Peter here, he's not just making a claim about God's justice. Peter is proclaiming the gospel. Peter is bearing witness to what God is doing in Christ. God is extending his cleansing beyond the Jewish people. That's what Peter is recognizing. And this isn't something that Peter has simply always known. It's something that he's discovering in the light of what God is doing. It's why he uses the, this present progressive tense verb when he says, truly I understand. Really what he's saying is, now I am understanding that this is true. There is no person who is common or unclean. And just think of Mrs. Turpin's vision that I mentioned in Flannery O'Connor's story. All the divisions she had of people into respectable and non-respectable, all of it burned away. And Peter's vision 
seems to teach the same. And this might be hard to realize how revolutionary this was. It seems obvious to us now when we read the Bible that, of course, this was always the plan. Hadn't the prophets spoken of the Gentiles being included in God's salvation? Hadn't Jesus himself talked about the gospel going to the ends of the earth? Already in Acts, we've begun to see this take place with people like Philip the evangelist going to Samaritans and then speaking to an Ethiopian. But remember, this is the first time that an apostle like Peter has taken the step of entering a Gentile's home. And this is very controversial for Jewish Christians who are back in Jerusalem. Because when Peter gets back in chapter 11, he's criticized for the report that he ate with uncircumcised Gentiles. But Peter, Peter is recognizing and responding to what God is doing. The Spirit told him to go see Cornelius. And when he preaches, it is the Holy Spirit who descends on these Gentiles and has the same effect as the descent of the Spirit in Pentecost. So what Peter says then about God being impartial is simply a response to what he is witnessing before his very eyes. Peter is testifying to a truth. God has redefined his understanding of who is in and who is out. It's no longer based on circumcision or dietary habits or ethnic markers of some kind, but simply on faith in Christ. The gospel is the great equalizer. As Peter puts it in his sermon to Cornelius and his household, Jesus is Lord of all. Now, maybe you're thinking, this seems like a very obvious point. Why, is, why am I belaboring it so much? But the truth is, this was one of the most controversial and the most revolutionary aspects of the gospel in the early church. You could continue to see how it remains controversial later in Acts, this division between Jew and Gentile, but also in letters of Paul like Galatians and Romans and Ephesians. This topic is brought up again and again. Christians, early Christians struggled to overcome these divisions. And it wasn't just the Jew and Gentile division. In other New Testament letters like 1 Corinthians and James, we could see that Christians were also tempted to divide themselves according to distinctions like wealth and class. But what Peter's vision was forcing him to recognize is the truth that, as the Apostle Paul would put it later on, because of what God has done in Christ and the Spirit, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. It took a strange vision and a dramatic work of the Holy Spirit to convince Peter of this. And he still had to persuade others when he got back. And judging by the controversy that we read about in the book of Galatians, the controversy later between Peter and Paul, it seems that Peter himself continued to struggle with the implications of his vision. And Peter wasn't alone. What, what he learned that day on the roof in his vision, that God shows no partiality, that the gospel is the great equalizer, well, this is something that Christians have continued to struggle with over the centuries. 
Just think about the church in the United States. From the colonial period well into the 19th century, it was a common practice to purchase pews. And because of that, the effect was that churches tended to be divided, even in a Sunday worship service, by social class. The wealthy sat in one place, the poor who couldn't afford to purchase a pew sat elsewhere. And the same thing happened with race in the United States. Many churches segregated black and white members, and ultimately, most denominations split into separate denominations along racial lines. Now, there's a lot of progress that's been made, thankfully, but those divisions are still with us. In 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said that it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Now it seems that the greatest divide in America is no longer race, but political identity. And according to recent research, this is being reflected in churches. More and more American Christians are choosing their church based on how well they align with the political party that they support. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that all of these divisions are the same as the Jewish-Gentile split. There are some real differences. My point is simply, we shouldn't be surprised that it was so difficult for Peter to recognize this truth and for other Jewish Christians to come to terms with it as well. The implication of his vision was that all these previous divisions between clean and unclean, holy and unholy, who were the righteous and who were the wicked, these no longer applied. All that matters now is faith in Christ. And that had real concrete consequences about who Peter should eat and associate with. To quote Will Willimon once more, what Peter learned is that conversion to Christ becomes a mundane matter of who shall eat at our table. Now, several decades after Peter's vision and his visit to Cornelius, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church in Rome. Now, they too were a community who had mixed convictions about what food could be eaten and who to sit down with at a table. And so Paul reminded them of the gospel, of how Christ had extended welcome to all of them. And then here's what Paul said, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I think that's a good summary of what Peter learned that day. Christ hasn't just welcomed Jews, but Gentiles also. So therefore you must welcome one another. And that admonition from Paul, that remains true today. You and I, we have been surprisingly welcomed. Like those unclean animals in the sheet that was let down, we too were unclean, but we have been cleansed. We have been shown welcome. Therefore, let us welcome one another, as Paul says, for the glory of God.